Good evening, guys. Welcome to episode 39 of the Christopher Anastasio podcast. Today is Wednesday, October 7th, 2020. And uh, just getting around to my first episode of the week. A little bit challenged on Monday and Tuesday, so I'm going to try to get at least two episodes in this week. This one in number 40, maybe a third one, number 41, by the time the weekend comes. So anyway, those those will be hitting at uh, 5.30 Eastern daylight time as usual. Uh, so uh, hopefully you guys get a chance to check them out this week. Uh, today, I'm going to make a slight pivot, not not a 180 degree pivot, but a slight pivot away from the last three episodes. Um, I spent episodes 36, 37, and 38 talking about um, the sort of fallout or, you know, and or I guess my personal interpretation of the controversy surrounding President Trump's taxes. They had been released a couple weekends ago, and I spent last week kind of examining different aspects of them. I picked three big aspects. I picked, for episode 36, uh, the amount of debt that Donald Trump is in, and talked about that from the standpoint of how our whole system is based on debt and how wealthy people want lots of debt, but the rest of us look at debt as a bad thing, and that's why the New York Times reacted to his extremely large debt burden uh, in, in sort of a negative tonality. I uh, spent episode 37 talking about um, how Donald Trump was able to wipe away huge losses on his, I mean, excuse me, wipe away large amounts of income on his tax returns by, by citing enormous losses in real estate and how that ties back to being a real estate professional. Just wanted you guys to kind of get some insight on how that even works in the first place. Uh, and then episode 38 talked about um, the sort of wild kinds of deductions that, that Trump had cited, like, you know, $75,000 for hairstyling and, and uh, you know, Ivanka getting $746,000 in consultant fees. You know, so I kind of examined, like, how were those things possible? Which ones seemed like they might be legitimate and which ones seemed like they could not be legitimate? So so he kind of used those three episodes, sort of an informal three-part series to look closely at both his taxes and then in a larger sense how our system works, how it's sort of set up to facilitate these types of things that facilitate these you know, seemingly ridiculous outcomes, uh, particularly on a wealthy person's tax return where they end up paying less money than you know, the grocery store manager down the block you know, or, or whatever. So today almost as an epilogue uh, to this whole discussion, um, there's an article that a colleague of mine, shout out to Jason, uh, sent me. Great, great article. It was actually published September 21st on medium.com by uh, the author Austin G. Mackle. That's M-A-C-K-E-L-L. And the title is, quote, Explaining Bullshit Jobs with Monetary Theory, unquote. Okay, <laughs> so... So, I mean, yeah, a very good, uh, you know, intro right there um, to this podcast. But um, what I wanted to do was, first of all, I posted this article on my Facebook page uh, yesterday uh, to give people a chance. You know, maybe if you had a chance to look at it, you would you would be familiar with what I was going to talk about today or at least see the source of, of this podcast. Uh, but, and, you know, no, no problem if you didn't. I'm, I'm actually going to be going through the article uh, and you got to forgive me if it's a little clumsy at times. I got to find different places that I sort of mentally flagged. Uh, but things that I wanted to quote to you guys and kind of explore with you. Um, some really interesting points that Austin makes in this article, many of which I agree with or I, or I concur with him in terms of the veracity of, of the things that he's citing. And a few of them we kind of diverge. But. Um, I wanted to kind of go through that article. There's going to be a little bit of an off-ramp to begin this podcast because his article was sort of inspired by a gentleman named David Graeber. That's G-R-A-E-B-E-R, David Graeber. And I'm going to give you a little background on him here in a second. Um, But I think that in order to properly examine this article, the foundation to the article is David Graeber, his background, the book that he wrote called Bullshit Jobs, and then also a quick summary on modern monetary theory, which is cited uh, multiple times in the article by Austin Mackle. Now, um, just as a heads up to you guys, I mean, I usually try to keep these things around 20 or 30 minutes. <laughs> Lately, I've been blowing past that number, and today may be yet another day 
but that happens because there's quite a bit of material to sift through here. I didn't want to break this podcast up into multiple uh, into multiple episodes, so we'll see how fast we can get through it. Uh, if you guys just bear with me, uh, or just listen to the podcast in you know two halves or three thirds or whatever. Okay, so let's dive in here for a second. So modern monetary theory. Let's just go to Wikipedia on that real quick. I'm going to read from Wikipedia to you guys. Modern monetary theory, or it's often written as modern money theory, or MMT. Um, And it says here, um, yeah, so the quote here is, modern monetary theory is a heterodox macroeconomic theory that describes currency as a public monopoly and unemployment as evidence that a currency monopolist is overly restricting the supply of the financial assets needed to pay taxes and satisfy savings desires. MMT is an alternative to mainstream macroeconomic theory. It has been criticized by well-known economists, but is claimed by its proponents to be more effective in describing the global economy in the years following the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009. MMT argues that governments create new money by using fiscal policy. According to advocates, the primary risk once the economy reaches full employment is inflation, which can be addressed by gathering taxes to reduce the spending capacity of the private sector. MMT is debated with active dialogues about its theoretical integrity, the implications of the policy recommendations of its proponents, and the extent to which it is actually divergent from orthodox macroeconomics. Now, early in that description, I said it was a heterodox macroeconomic theory. I didn't know what that meant. Um, So heterodox economics is any economic thought or theory that contrasts with orthodox schools of economic thought or that may be beyond neoclassical economics. These include institutional, evolutionary, feminist, social, post-Keynesian, ecological, Georgist, Austrian, Marxian, socialist, and anarchist economics, among others. So I happen to hew a little bit closer to Austrian economics, so I guess I would also be considered a heterodox economic proponent. But I'm not going to digress and talk about Austrian economics right now. So let's let's go back <clears throat> okay, to MMT. So set the table on what MMT is. And, and what you can see there, that core argument that governments create new money, that, that money is a good thing for reaching full employment. It only becomes a bad thing if inflation starts to get out of control, in which case you use taxes to tamp down spending. Okay, so that's kind of in a nutshell. Now, that's the first foundation we need to lay. Now let's go over to David Graeber, okay, uh, the, the guy that, that sort of inspired the article. Okay, now Graeber, just reading again from Wikipedia, uh, says David Graeber, who, by the way, just passed away on September 2nd of this year. He's only 59 years old, so, um, you know, obviously a sad situation there. Um, but David Graeber, it says, quote, was an American anthropologist, anarchist, activist, and author known for his books, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, published in 2011, The Utopia of Rules, published in 2015, and Bullshit Jobs, A Theory, in 2018. He was a professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics, as an assistant and later associate professor of anthropology at Yale. From 1998 to 2007, Graeber specialized in theories of value and social theory. Uh, His activism included protests against the Third Summit of the Americas in Quebec City in 2001, and the 2002 World Economic Forum in New York City. Graeber was a leading figure in the Occupy Wall Street movement and is sometimes credited with having coined the slogan, We Are the 99%. He accepted credit for the description, the 99%, quote-unquote, but said that others had expanded it into the slogan. Okay, so that's just some background on Graeber. Obviously, you can tell just from me reading that he was part of Occupy Wall Street. Not a big pro-capitalist guy. (laughs) Okay, um, you know, Occupy Wall Street was very much about, you know, eat the rich, you know, take from the wealthy, redistribute, you know, it had a very socialist um, theme to it. Um, I'm sure you guys remember that it basically uh, kind of rose up. Um, um, you know, in the 2011 time frame, um, you know. I'm not even sure when it ended. I mean, it kind of started in September 2011. I don't think it's necessarily over with. 
but uh, you know, it, it definitely brought a lot of attention to the wealth disparity that was going on at the time. And in 2011, if you remember, there was a lot of there was a lot of talk about cutting government spending. We had the sequestration issue, I think, in early 2011 with the U.S. government, and you know, they, they couldn't even agree on cutting 80 billion dollars out of the budget. I mean, just there was a lot of you know issues kind of going on in 2011 as President Obama neared the end of his first term. And the Occupy Wall Street movement was sort of an expression of the frustration that came out of that 07 to 09 Great Recession. Um, so anyway, so obviously Graeber had something to do with that. Now let's click over to his book, and I'm just going to read you now a little background on the book that he wrote called Bullshit Jobs. Uh, 2018 book by anthropologist David Graeber argues for the existence and societal harm of meaningless jobs. He contends that over half of societal work is pointless which becomes psychologically destructive when paired with a work ethic that associates work with self-worth. Graeber describes five types of meaningless jobs in which workers pretend their role is not as pointless or harmful as they know it to be. And then he has sort of nicknames for those five, and the nicknames are flunkies, goons, duct tapers, box tickers, and taskmasters, which we'll go through those in a second, what each of those mean. So it goes on to say here, quote, He argues that the association of labor with virtuous suffering is recent in human history and proposes universal basic income as a potential solution. So what are the five jobs that he was talking about? Okay, number one, flunkies. Serve to make their superiors feel important. For example, receptionists, administrative assistants, door attendants. Number two, goons. Oppose other goons hired by other companies, i.e. lobbyists, corporate lawyers, telemarketers, public relations specialists. Number three, duct tapers, who temporarily fix problems that could be fixed permanently. For example, programmers repairing shoddy code, airline desk staff who calm passengers whose bags do not arrive, and so forth. Number four, box tickers, create the appearance that something useful is being done when it is not, i.e. survey administrators, in-house magazine journalists, corporate compliance officers. And number five, taskmasters, who manage or create extra work for those who do not need it. For example, middle management, leadership professionals. Okay. So, I mean, you could read a lot of stuff here uh, from his bio or from the book's bio. And I encourage you guys to take a look at his bio. Very interesting guy. Look at the book, Bullshit Jobs. You know, at least the summary on Wikipedia, definitely informative there. But I kind of want to go into um, the main article that this podcast is about. And the article explaining bullshit jobs with monetary theory, I think it's a very important article. I think everybody who is remotely interested in the subject or curious about, you know, what's really going on in our society economically, wealth-wise, suffering-wise, you know, uh, from a financial perspective, would really do well to read this article. It's a really outstanding find uh, that I was lucky to get, like I said, from my colleague Jason. So the article starts off with a quote from Graeber that is definitely provocative, I mean, you know, from an economic standpoint. It says, quote, again, this is Graeber speaking, quote, it's as if someone were out there making up pointless jobs just for the sake of keeping us all working. And here precisely lies the mystery. In capitalism, this is precisely what is not supposed to happen, unquote. Now, let me just say right off the bat, guys, what's interesting about this quote, knowing that Graeber is anti-capitalist, I mean, I, I can assume that based on the fact that he was part of Occupy Wall Street, uh, he advocates for universal basic income, which is not really a capitalist uh, tenet. What's interesting is he is honing in on the very issue that I've discussed on this podcast on at least a few occasions. I may, you know, may have even alluded to it more than that, which is that we don't have capitalism, and that's why this is happening. You see, he's he's saying here he's working from the premise that we have capitalism, that we have the, the pure form of capitalism. And he's saying, hey, we have capitalism. How do we have these bullshit jobs? And I'm saying, you're right, David Graeber. We have bullshit jobs. But we have bullshit jobs because we don't actually have pure capitalism. So I'm working backwards from what I believe is a, an accurate premise on his part. I believe he is correct that we have jobs that are meaningless if you put them in the context of an efficient, purely capitalist marketplace. They would go away. You see what I'm saying? So I agree with him that they exist, but when I backtrack from there, I reach the conclusion that the reason they exist 
is because we do not have pure capitalism, whereas Graeber is working from the position that we have capitalism and it is producing some, some demented outcome known as these five types of jobs that I read from Wikipedia a moment ago. So it's interesting that we have an overlap here, uh, him and I, um, but obviously there's a major divergence eventually. I think, you know, obviously Graeber would not point to capitalism as a solution, whereas I might, you know. But anyway, if you look at the article, I'm going to kind of go through different parts of this article and then kind of expand on them with my own commentary or my own opinion. Um, but one of the things that um, is argued early on in this article uh, that the author talks about uh, he says here, um, employment is, I'm quoting from the article, employment is by definition work performed for money. Therefore, labor, like other resources, moves in the opposite direction to currency. And the author says, I made a rhyme so it's easy to remember. From whence money flows, there labor goes. There are exceptions to this when money flows up away from workers, taxes and loan repayments, for example. But those are both times when money is flowing out of the real economy. So from where does money flow in? Well, actually the same places, banks and the government. <clears throat> so Mackel goes on to say here, <clears throat> he says, Banks create money in the form of an account balance when they authorize loans. These accounts are theoretically backed by a reserve of central bank money created in the same manner. Bank lending favors the wealthy and large companies since banks are more inclined to lend to people and businesses with existing assets and high incomes. Okay, and then he goes on to say, right after that, but first, it's important to note that governments also create money. The government borrows by selling interest-paying treasury bonds to investors and banks. Then, as needed, the central bank buys these bonds from those investors and banks with money it creates with keystrokes. So-called, quote, modern monetary theory, unquote, isn't just an idea for what should happen, but also a description of what already happens. Okay, so what's really fascinating about, I mean, there's so much to unpack here, guys, and you almost have to, I have to apologize up front to you. There's so much in this article, I almost will have to return to it at some point because I can't get it all in in 60 minutes here. Um, but what's really fascinating about what the guy's saying here, just on a fundamental level, is kind of what I said a few episodes back where I quoted from Modern uh, Money Mechanics to you guys, the publication from the Chicago Federal Reserve Bank, which just outlined in plain terms, I mean, no, no conspiracies, no, you know, under the table type stuff, just, just flat out, you know, publication released to the public, that banks create money out of nothing. They take a deposit, an initial deposit, they can loan out up to nine times that, that money while keeping, you know, while keeping the money... Uh, in reserve, okay, um, and 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 they literally profit off of the circulation of, of those funds, both from an interest perspective and an investment perspective. So we talked about that a few episodes back. What the author is saying here is essentially the same thing. He talks about how banks create money. He talked about the account balance. They authorize loans. They're backed by the central bank. That whole thing. He's talking about modern money mechanics, okay. The, the, the banks creating money out of nothing. And he goes on to say where the source of all that flows from, the central bank. The fact that um, central banks can take government debt and turn it into money because they can theoretically you know, or you know, abstractly buy the government debt, put it on their balance sheet, okay, and then exchange that debt that they're buying with money that they give the government, right? The, the United States Treasury issues the bond, the Federal Reserve Bank buys the bonds and deposits money, quote-unquote, into the Treasury. Well, that money is created out of thin air. And I like the fact the author makes a point to use the word keystrokes. He says, and I'm repeating here from his article, as needed, the central bank buys these bonds from the investors and banks with money it creates with keystrokes. Okay? So, very fascinating how he identifies and sort of lays bare how money is created from nothing. And what he's essentially describing here is 
a distorted marketplace, right? In, in a capitalist marketplace, nobody creates money out of thin air. There's no such thing, okay? I mean, I, I don't know if that's news to people or if people understand that already, and you know, I don't, I don't know. But in capitalism, there's no entity or entities creating money from nothing. It doesn't happen there. But it happens in our system. And it's, it's not just that it happens in our system because, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm digging around in these shadowy nooks and crannies of the government. This is, this is a known quantity. This is a known fact. This is an advertised fact. This is something you can turn on CNBC and you can turn on NBC News and you can turn on Fox News. And you will hear people talking about – now, they use fancy terms. Don't get me wrong, guys. They, they don't say this to you in plain English, okay? <laughs> they, they tell you this. With, with jargon, with a lexicon unto itself. They talk about quantitative easing. Translation, creating money out of nothing. They talk about monetizing debt. Translation, turning bullshit treasury bond pieces of paper into bullshit money, okay? Um, they, you know, they talk about, you know, open market operations for the Federal Reserve, Translation, the Federal Reserve goes into the marketplace and buys stuff with money that never existed in the first place, i.e. massive distortion, massive distortion to the marketplace, sending false signals to the marketplace that there's a big buyer of government bonds or, or municipal bonds or, or, or ETFs or stocks, whatever the Federal Reserve is going to start buying or has been buying. Okay, so, so what this article hits on in these few paragraphs that I just quoted to you, and I'm not even sure, you know, I don't know Austin Mackle. This is the first time I've run into the guy. I don't know how much he subscribes to the notion that these activities are harmful in ways other than the ones he talks about in this article. Obviously, this article puts these things in a bad context, but I'd be curious, like, how much else he's written about this subject, you know, how much else he's said about you know, banks creating money out of thin air and the Federal Reserve creating money out of keystrokes. I mean, this is really fascinating stuff, and it's very important that people understand this, and he clearly understands it. Uh, and he's kind of using this knowledge to explain this one particular phenomenon, this bullshit job kind of phenomenon, which he then goes on to make a larger point from, and we'll work our way up to that. But very fascinating to me that he, he points this stuff out. Now, the other thing I wanted to kind of you know, I said there's a lot to unpack here, guys. We're talking about money flow. We're talking about money creation out of thin air. We're talking about distorted marketplace due to money being created out of thin air. Okay, so a lot of points there, a lot of overlap with some of the other things I've talked about on the podcast. But the other thing it touches on that I want to zero in on, I'm going to go back and read this again. And this goes back to, I think it's episode 20, when I talked to you guys for the first time about buy, borrow, die. And I talked about how wealthy individuals who have massive pools of assets don't live off the money from those assets because it would be taxed. Instead, they just take the asset gains, go to a bank, say, hey, my assets went up by X million dollars. Give me a loan for X million dollars. They get the loan. The loan is not taxable because it's not income, and they live tax-free. Okay, so that's buy, borrow, die, and 30-second soundbite. But in that episode, I'm pretty sure I remember telling you guys because I was kind of trying to answer the rhetorical question that you might have had in your head. Well, how do they keep going to banks and getting loans? Like, how do you keep going to a bank and getting, you know, $10 million and $50 million and $100 million? Like, eventually the bank is going to be tapped out of, you know, giving that person or that entity loans. Well, as Mackle says here, and I'm going to go back and re-quote, quote, bank lending favors the wealthy and large companies since banks are more inclined to lend to people and businesses with existing assets and high incomes, unquote. So he's saying it there better than I can, which very succinctly wraps up the whole point that if you're wealthy, it's easier to get wealthier because you can walk into a bank, you can slide a balance sheet across the table to the banker and say, here's my balance sheet. I'm worth, you know, $100 million. And, you know, this pool of assets of $50 million has been enjoying an, an annual gain on average of 8%. So give me a $4 million loan or give me, you know, a $10 million loan or a $2 million, whatever they're asking for. It's easy to get what you're asking for in that situation because you already have a very strong financial foundation from which to work, uh, to work from. Okay, so... The wealthy get wealthier because they can access these um, 
They can access these loans and, and get these, these payments from the bank fairly easily. Um, and then, you know, they can then use that, those loans to make more investments and, and, and raise their net worth even higher and go back and get more loans that are even bigger than the last loan that they got. For you and I, there's no chance we're going to do buy, borrow, die. I mean, we just cannot play in that space. Um, we just can't play in that space the way they can. So he points that out here, and he doesn't call it that. He doesn't use buy, borrow, die. In fact, he doesn't even reference the, the taking of loans as tax-free, essentially, income. But he, he does talk about it here uh, in an illusion-type way. Uh, and I just want to make sure you guys notice that. Okay, so let's go down the article a little bit more. Um, and he makes another point here that I actually made in, I believe, both episode two, when I when I talked about, uh, you know, it was titled In Defense of Capitalism. That was back in May uh, when I saw that trending topic on Twitter, RIP Capitalism. I made that episode and kind of retorted that we don't have capitalism. And then in episode 30, I believe, not your typical free market advocate, um, I also made this point uh, I, on some level. I don't know how detailed I got about it, but let me just read this to you guys, and then I'm gonna, and then I'm gonna turn it back over to the way that I had presented this. So he says here, "quote The post-war boom." He's referring to World War II, by the way. The post-war boom was the product of sustained and substantial deficit spending. This government largesse put money in the hands of ordinary people who spent it on products and services made, sold, and delivered by other ordinary people causing widespread prosperity, like how a whole ecosystem becomes more vibrant after a big rain, unquote. Okay, so now he, he has a slightly different take on it. I mean, he, he's talking about post-World War II boom as something that was, you know, a bit of a distorted marketplace because of the government's deficit spending. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think, <clears throat> in fact, I, I just didn't really say it this way before, but I, I definitely see his point here, and I, and I agree with it, that you know, in these other two podcasts I mentioned, I did make the point that if the United States had ever come close to pure capitalism, it was in the post-war era from, let's say, approximately 1945 when the war ended to approximately, let's say, 1970 when we came off the gold center. Again, very loose guardrails there. But those 25 years post-war to coming off the gold standard in 71, we were as close as we ever got to pure capitalism. Now, we excluded whole segments of our society from that prosperity. That's another story, another podcast. But I'm just saying, in our actual execution of capitalism, that's the closest we got. And it, and it caused prosperity for the most number of people. But it didn't cause prosperity for all people. It just, it just got the number as high as it was going to go, and then since then it's come down and down and down and down. So his point here that he's kind of saying is simply that in the post-war boom, uh, the infusion of money into the economy, you know, the deficit spending, so forth, uh, drove a lot of this. And, and again, this is why I say we were not purely capitalist then either because the government was spending a crap ton of money uh, coming out of that war. Now, a slight difference there is a lot of the money they were spending were, were taxes that were collected from American people. I mean – it wasn't all monetized debt by the Federal Reserve. A lot of it was taxes. And I believe that while the Federal Reserve did create money uh, through World War II, it was nothing. It was nothing like what we've done in recent memory, the last 10, 20 years. Okay, so that is a big difference there. But again, we weren't purely capitalist then either. We were just as close as we ever got. And I think uh, the author, Mackle, kind of makes that point in a slightly different language here when he points out that there was quite a bit of prosperity coming out of World War II, okay? Now, as he goes down, and I know we haven't really talked about this whole bullshit job thing. I mean, we haven't come to his point on that, but now we will. Okay, so we've sort of set the table, talked about Graeber, talked about modern monetary theory, uh, worked through Mackel's argument about how banks and governments create money out of nothing, distort the marketplace, uh, you know, sending out false signals with this money they've created, um, and so now let's let's talk about the bullshit jobs. Okay, so so he has a graph in the um, article. In fact, it's the it's it's the pic that you guys if you go to my Facebook page and you see the link to the article, the picture that you see that you'd click on to go to the article is this 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 graph that he has where he shows like the money creation side of things between government spending, the central bank, and the financial sector, and then the real economy where you have firms and labor and consumers. 
okay? And he shows like on the right side of that graph where you have the financial sector and the firms, there's more bullshit. And when you go to the other side where you have the consumers, there's less bullshit, okay? <laughs> so it's just kind of funny the way he puts this. But anyway, so he has that graph and then he's talking about the graph and explaining it. And he has this outstanding quote that actually made me laugh out loud the first time I read it. It's a little bit long, so bear with me. But he says, quote, so you have experts consulting on tax law to design companies who are contracted by advertising companies who are engaged by companies that make software for lead generation for companies who run corporate team building retreats for law firms who provide patent expertise to venture capitalist firms who invest in blockchain technology companies who provide services to banks who maybe lend money to companies that finally actually make products for customers to use in the real world or not the real world, after all, is not where the money comes from, unquote. So obviously a mouthful there. You know, he's, he's clearly being cynical. He's clearly being sarcastic as he talks about these layers and layers of companies interacting with each other in this sort of massively inefficient way that really, when you step back, the only purpose of it is to create employment, right? I mean, you have all these companies servicing each other in a way that has nothing to do with actual, useful, practical goods flowing through the economy, right? They're just companies servicing companies, servicing companies, servicing companies that maybe make real products, right? So just a really good quote. And I think that kind of like, so this is where you can see, guys, the the article kind of crests into uh, his major point that, yeah, it's just bullshit jobs everywhere. And we're going to see that he, he starts building up to a larger point than that compared to Graeber, but great quote there, and it's and it's it's hard not to laugh at that because I mean I think if you're in the corporate world, if you if you if you've been in that kind of employment, you've been in this uh, segment of the economy, this this resonates with you. You you know that there are companies out there like this just doing nothing for nothing's sake besides employing people. Okay, um, so anyway, it says he goes on right after that that um, uh, that that paragraph to say something that I also covered in. Um, a recent podcast, forget the episode number, I think it was high 20s, but it was stock market lunacy, okay, where I was talking about the stock market has nothing to do with the real economy. And he says here, right after that lengthy quote I read you, quote, this helps explain how, fueled by cheap money provided by the Federal Reserve, the U.S. stock market has continued to rise even as the real economy has collapsed, unquote. And he, he couldn't have hit it any harder than that. It's exactly correct. You have an economy that is uh, totally uh, in a distressed situation. I'd say, you know, to, to put it as nicely as possible, it's in a completely distressed situation right now with the pandemic and the lockdown and coronavirus and companies shuttering their doors and people going on unemployment and the government printing stimulus checks. I mean, you literally have an actively collapsing economy. And when I say actively collapsing, I mean the collapse isn't finished and it isn't completely, you know, dramatically catastrophic yet because the process is still going. But the, the point is the economy is in the process of collapsing and the stock market is soaring, okay? And, of course, you have politicians such as the president citing a rising stock market as a great indicator of how healthy the economy is. I mean, an actively collapsing economy. So it's pure madness. It's pure lunacy, and Mackel zeroes in on it perfectly here. And he, and, he, and he derives from this cynical argument about these bullshit jobs the very culmination of it, how you can have a rising, thriving, vibrant stock market while the economy is actually collapsing in the real world, while unemployment numbers are going up, people are collecting stimulus checks, people don't know where their next meal is going to come from. And, and in the meantime, the stock market is making new highs. Right? The stock market is breaking new barriers. I mean, it's completely and utterly unhinged from reality. Okay? So great point there by Mackle. Really like the fact that he that he did that. Now he goes on, um, he has a really good analogy here further down the article, um, that, that kind of gives you a sense of like what he's talking about, but he does it in kind of a funny uh, parable kind of way. And he says here, again, quoting from the article, uh, when making rockets, engineers and scientists work hard to minimize and overcome what they call the, quote, beer can problem, unquote. You start with a payload you want to deliver to space, some astronauts who need to get to the space station or whatever. Then you need the fuel to lift them into orbit. 
Then you need the fuel to lift that fuel. Then you need the fuel to lift the fuel to lift the fuel, and so on. Pretty soon, the rocket is like a tall, explosive beer can, only heavy when it's full. So, <laughs> so, so basically, he says here, right after that, we can imagine the economy facing a similar problem. We need a certain amount of labor to make, transport, and provide the stuff and services we actually need or even want. Food, housing, education, healthcare, plumbing, electricity, consumer economics, directly useful stuff. That's the payload. But then he goes on to say the fuel that lifts the payload is the people performing the labor need office space, they need transport, they need electricity, uh, they need admin support, they need a massive city center office, they need 24-lane freeways. They, you know, so he has, I'm not exactly quoting there, but, but he goes on to say like, okay, the, the fuel that lifts the fuel that lifts the fuel is all these other jobs and functions, right? So it's really a great analogy for it. I, I definitely hear what he's saying. It definitely resonates with me. I can definitely kind of look out the window proverbially here and see this going on in our economy. And by the way, I didn't say this at the beginning. Uh, Mackel is, if I noted correctly, uh, Australian. So he's not, he's not speaking from the U.S. per se, but he's speaking from what I would kind of lump together, U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, you know, that that sort of sector of the world uh, is what his perspective is kind of informed by. Um, but anyway, so so great point there about the beer can problem describing our economy. It's very hard to disagree with that. Um, so what he kind of goes on to say, I'm going to wrap up with these two points from, from his article. He goes on to then conclude two kind of major things after he illustrates the beer can problem and all that. He says, that he feels that Graeber was wrong in suggesting that only these five categories of jobs were bullshit. Rather, Mackel says the whole thing is bullshit. Okay, <laughs> so, okay, so he says here, um, he says here, uh, yeah, this helps us understand two things Graeber got wrong. One of these is placing the blame entirely at the feet of a ruling class he apparently sees as fiendishly conspiratorial and disciplined rather than just mean and stupid. The second is the attempt to say which kinds of jobs are bullshit. And then he says, in a sane economy where people had money to spend and labor was properly priced, demand would drive supply. Companies would be focused on making and doing stuff, not coaxing and badgering consumers into making purchases. Uh, fundamentally, it's not specific kinds of jobs or companies or industries or sectors, but the whole economy is infused with bullshit. No job is free of it. Even a large portion of the work performed in our health system is just dealing with the damage our sadistic economy does to people, unquote. So, so there's the big reveal, right, is that Mackle takes Graeber's uh, argument one step further and says, no, it's not, it's not these five categories of, you know, flunkies, goons, ticket, you know, ticket checkers, whatever, ticket, you know, box checkers, whatever the five categories were that I mentioned at the beginning. He's saying it's more than that. It's the whole economy, the whole fabric, the whole tapestry is sort of infused with this artificiality and nothing escapes it. Now, you know, one job may be more bullshit than another, I guess, is kind of implied here. Uh, They're not all equally bullshit, but I think what he's trying to say is the tentacles of the distortion and the fake money and, the, and the, the, the money flowing out of the banks and the government and the central bank, it touches everything. It, it, it corrodes the entire economy. And it's hard to, it's hard to disagree with that. I mean, I, I'd never thought of it exactly that way. I kind of thought there was the efficient part of the market and the non-efficient part, hence why we don't have pure capitalism. But it's really interesting to, to see him put it this way and to think about it because the economy is so integrated with itself that if you have corrosion in one area, doesn't that mean you have corrosion everywhere, right? Because everything touches something else. So really, really fascinating there. And then I want to leave at least a little bit of time as we head to the 40-minute mark on the other big reveal that he makes towards the end. And he doesn't spend a lot of time on this. In fact, I kind of feel like he could have he, he could have gone into more detail about this and expanded on it. Um, but he basically says, and I, I, I want to see if there was a quote here I wanted to read to you guys uh, about this. Um, yeah, okay. So he goes on to, to advocate for universal basic income. Now, if you guys don't know, universal basic income is the idea that the government would simply issue its citizens a certain amount of money, you know, every month, presumably, I, I suppose, maybe it's weekly, bi-weekly, I don't know exactly, but they would, they would essentially send money to their citizens. 
And that money would be discretionary. You know, you'd do whatever you want with the money. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have to work for it. You wouldn't, you'd just be receiving it, right? And so Graeber, of course, advocated for it, as I read to you earlier. But here's what Mackle says. When it comes to a solution, I think Graeber is correct, but he doesn't realize how correct he is. A basic income would allow people to decide what to do with their time, but it's actually much bigger than that. They would spend it on things they really want, not just the things they need to keep their jobs, like uncomfortable shoes or housing in overpriced cities. And so our whole economy would start to reorient towards both reducing drudgery and producing what people actually desire, rather than increasing the abstract wealth of a tiny minority. So he goes down a little bit further. Um, He says here, in modern monetary theory's defense, there's something to the argument that the jobs created by a government program might be less bullshitty than those created by the dysfunctional, debt-driven private sector. Okay, again, I'm for the private sector, but I wish the private sector were with we're in the context of pure capitalism. He correctly indicts the private sector as being dysfunctional and debt-driven, and hopefully he understands where the source of that is because he mentions it, in my opinion, earlier in the article. He mentions the central bank, the banking system, and the government distorting the private sector. Okay, so hence, that's what, that's what I believe he means when he says dysfunctional, debt-driven private sector. Okay. So he says, measuring the prosperity of a nation by the amount of work performed in it or the degree of economic activity is like measuring the value of a book by the number of letters it contains, regardless of whether they say something interesting. The best economy is not the biggest or smallest, but the most pleasing to the people who inhabit it. The first step towards this is the screamingly, obnoxiously obvious step of just giving people money. Okay, so that kind of ends the article. I mean, he has like a paragraph or two after that, but... Here's the deal, guys, and I know I've got about 19 minutes here, tops, to discuss this. So this really could be a totally separate podcast, but I want to touch on it here for a second about universal basic income. And I think if, if you know me and you know me well enough to know my views, this might come as a surprise to you, okay? So everybody sit down. Under the current context, okay, meaning leave everything the way it is today, government, banking system, economy, etc., I am not opposed to a universal basic income. <laughs> I mean, I probably, you know, this is, again, I told you I mostly agreed with this guy and there's some divergences. I mean, you could see that we may diverge on whether capitalism is the answer or not. This is the other area we might diverge on because if I had my way, if I could wave a wand and make everything the way I wanted it to be, there wouldn't be a universal basic income because we wouldn't have a debt-fueled, distorted corroded economy the way we do now. We would actually implement capitalism with some purity. We would actually implement it in a way that it uh, was viable to the most number of people. There's no guarantee in any economic system that anybody prospers. No system guarantees that. But it's my fundamental belief that capitalism gives the most number of people the best shot at prospering when it is implemented correctly. We've never implemented it correctly here. That's why I said earlier we've left out whole segments of our population from the prosperity that capitalism can bring. And that's why I think a lot of people just hate capitalism as a knee-jerk reaction or they hate capitalism by, by, by rule. So we, we failed in that regard. But again, we have never reached the point where we actually implemented it in its purest form. And an argument can be made that that's not possible. I'm not even going to pretend that argument doesn't exist. You can argue that Capitalism can't be purely implemented. But I would also argue I'm not sure any of them can be purely implemented, so you have to pick the best one, right? You're, you're still left with that kind of Machiavellian kind of decision where you've got to just kind of do the most good that you can do for the most number of people, and you have to believe in that system as being able to do that or achieve that, and that's why I advocate for capitalism. But again, we, we don't have it here. We don't do it here. We don't, you know, we, I think I mentioned in episode two or 30, whichever one it was, we take the worst parts of capitalism in our system and we leave out the best. We, we don't really allow everybody to experience the better parts of capitalism. We're too busy bailing out corporations, bailing out wealthy people, uh, the government hand-in-hand hand with corporations and, and um, moneyed interests distorting the economy. And guess where we at the bottom of that pole end up? 
we, you know, the crap lands on our head. <laughs> okay, so you know, if, if we're at the bottom of that food chain, guess what lands on our head? The waste. Okay, <laughs> so uh, kind of a rough analogy there, but you guys get the point. We essentially keep and retain the worst parts of capitalism, and and embrace, you know, embrace uh, the best parts of other systems for certain people. Okay, for certain people in the in the very upper crust. So, given that fact, if we can't get there, if we can't change things to get there and fix these issues that I'm talking about, well then, then we have to operate in this context, right? We have to operate in a cronyist, corporatized, government influenced, central bank led system that continues to distort the marketplace, continues to distort the outcome. And therefore, why not have a universal basic income? I mean, it's almost like saying, you know, hey, let's go play a game of football, but, you know, nobody's going to wear cleats. Like, you got to play the game, but you're not going to wear cleats. Like, okay, well, you kind of need them to do it. Like, if you're going to play and you're going to play full on, then you need every piece of equipment to do it correctly. So, you know use every piece of equipment at your disposal and play the game properly. So if we're going to play this game, if we're going to play this sort of, you know, create money out of thin air, distort the marketplace, you know, constantly crank out new debt creation, well, then you might as well give people money, right? Because that's, that would give us the one good part of a system like this. We, we already have the bad parts of the system, guys. We already have the inflation. We already have the wealthy getting wealthier. We already don't receive much benefit from this debt-fueled system. In fact, it's very hard to say we receive any benefit from this debt-fueled system, okay? I mean, what, do we have access to big loans to buy houses that are too expensive for us to pay cash for? Or we can get big loans for college degrees that we can't afford with cash? Or we can get loans for cars that we can't afford? I mean, that's, that's, that's the big gift from the debt-fueled economy? I mean, come on. So if we're gonna get something out of this and we're gonna keep this system, then sure, we should have a universal basic income. Because what you would do then is you would take that bottom rung of the ladder, you know, that's the rest of us getting the waste landing on our head from the, from the people up the ladder. Um, we would actually have a benefit accrue to us from this system. Because if the government can print and create money from keystrokes, as Mackle puts it, okay, totally love that word. I usually say created out of thin air. He says by keystroke. Um, if we're going to have the money created out of thin air by a keystroke, well, guess what? Let's get some of it. Send some of that money our way. <laughs> okay? I mean, like, why is it that when the money is created out of thin air, it's only going to 1% or 0.1% or 0.01% of the population? And the rest of us are just left with inflation. The rest of us are just left with massive debt obligations that we'll never pay off in our lifetime. I mean, if that's the system I'm going to live under, then yeah, sure, send me a check. Send me a check for a thousand bucks a month. Send me a check for two thousand bucks a month. I mean, okay, you know, you were going to print nine trillion dollars. Just print, just print ten trillion. What's the difference, right? I mean, the government and the central bank of the United States, Federal Reserve, printed I don't know somewhere between five and ten trillion dollars this spring. Okay, I mean, they they created more debt in a three month span than the country had, had seen in its first 200 years of existence, okay? So if they can create money from nothing like that, why can't they send us a check every once in a while, right? So I think, you know, and I'm not even saying this to be, quite frankly, I'm not even saying this to be sarcastic or cynical. I'm saying it as a very practical matter. Look at the context around us, look at the context of the system we're in, and then use that to say whether this is a good idea or not. Obviously, a universal basic income would not make any sense in actually capitalist system, okay? Because everybody would have opportunity. The marketplace wouldn't be distorted. You'd have a fair shot to go out and make money for yourself. You wouldn't need somebody to send you the check. But we're not in that system. We do not have that system, okay? We have a a hybrid Frankenstein, worst-of-all-world system for the common people. One of the best quotes that came out of the Great Recession, I forget who said it, or maybe it was an amalgam from a bunch of people saying different things, but it was this idea that it's, it's socialism for the wealthy, capitalism for the non-wealthy. In other words, 
the wealthy people get the socialist benefit of being sort of bailed out and taken care of by the government, the rest of us get the capitalist outcome, the sink or swim. Well, I'm all for sink or swim if there is a pure marketplace, a free marketplace, free from distortion, free from intervention, free from interference, free from picking winners and losers, then I'm all for, you know, winner, you know, winner take all, all or nothing, whatever. Um, you know, win or lose, you gotta, you gotta take it the way it comes kind of thing. I'm okay with that, but it has to be in the right context. And so out of the Great Recession, when I heard that quote, I was like, that's, that's probably the best way to sum up this whole stinking recession is that the wealthy people got the bailouts, got the losses socialized amongst the population. I mean, essentially, we paid for it, okay? We paid to bail everybody out, right? So the losses got socialized. The, the wealthy people got that benefit uh, of, of a sort of socialist concept. But the rest of us, during the Great Recession, if we lost our job or our industry was destroyed, that was it. We lost. We lost. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> we lost. And we got the cold, hard reality of an economic system, that being capitalism, that can be destructive, that can harm people, okay? So we had none of the benefit, but all of that, uh, that drawback, okay? So again, just to wrap up, guys, great article here by Mackel. Uh, the more I read through it and pick it apart, there's actually not much I disagree with. I think he has a certain tonality towards capitalism that's negative, and I probably you know, wouldn't ascribe to much of that, but... He, he clearly understands how money's created. He clearly understands the distortions. He clearly understands how it flows through an economy and distorts everything. And I don't disagree with him about universal basic income. In this context, in this system, <clears throat> universal basic income uh, has a place because if the government can create money out of thin air for corporations and wealthy uh, moneyed interests, then it should be able to create money out of thin air for us, for the rest of the people, okay? So anyway, guys, Super, super interested to hear what anybody has to say about this article or, or my comments on it. Uh, again, like I said, article is up on the Facebook page as of yesterday. Uh, I will post this podcast after it publishes in the evening. Uh, so you'll probably see that on the Facebook page actually tomorrow on uh, Thursday the 8th. Uh, but again, podcast will be available tonight after 530. Um, <clears throat> you know, really excited to hear people's reaction to all these episodes I've done, you know, 36, 37, 38 on Trump's taxes and now 39 about <clears throat> the modern monetary theory and the idea of the, of the bullshit jobs and the distorted economy. Okay, so now just a quick preview, guys. Um, I've, I've left it for a while, but I'm going to come back around in my next few episodes to some of the experiments, some of the projects I'm working on. Got a big update for you guys on, um, <clears throat> on the affiliate marketing experiment, where I'm going with that next as well as some interesting and exciting stuff <clears throat> with regard to um, <clears throat> my e-commerce sort of Shopify dropshipping efforts. Got some new developments there I'm going to go over. So you'll see in episodes 40, 41, most likely, uh, I'll be covering those areas and kind of circling back to those things. So anyway, guys, super appreciate you listening. Super appreciate you hanging in there for 53 plus minutes. I <laughs> uh, hope everybody has a great day, great end to the week, uh, you know, looking ahead to the weekend and all. And um very much appreciate you guys checking in on the podcast, sharing it, liking it, forwarding it, talking about it, whatever. Uh, follow me at, uh, at CJ Anastasio on Twitter, at Christopher Anastasio LLC on Facebook. Uh, once again, guys, thank you so much. Uh, stay safe and take care. Bye-bye.